You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John 11, starting with verse 1, I invite you to follow along as I read. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher's here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died come out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this holy and sacred passage of Scripture that we come to. Father, we pray that you would be pleased to bless us this morning, Father, with eyes that understand, with hearts that long for your truth, long to be filled, to feed our hearts, O oh Father. I know this is the disposition of so many that are here and present this morning. We long to be fed by your word. We long to be filled and hear your voice, O oh Father. And speak to us now, we pray, O oh Lord. Speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That was, we got a very long text this morning, don't we? It's a, uh, it's a lot of text. And trust me, when you're in your study through the week and Sunday's coming fast, it's, it's a long text, <laughs> a long text to get through. And there's a lot of places where we could pull off alongside of the road and spend an entire morning uh, on some of those uh, scenic places, if you will. And I, I will be careful to try not to draw your attention to every one of those and drop a truck on you this morning. Um, we can always return to this text at another time. But what I really want us to see this morning is the overall thrust of what's going on here, uh, the overall thrust of where John is taking us uh, with his gospel. And that certainly could be put another way, the overall thrust of where the Holy Spirit is taking us uh, in this gospel. Now, I'm going to go through and just briefly explain uh, verses as we come to it, and then we'll put this thing together uh, in the end. In other words, what I'd like to do is kind of approach this inductively this morning. If you look back to verse 1, there you'll see uh, the words, Now, a certain man was ill. I realize not all of us will have the word certain. Some translations lack that word, but that word is indeed in the text. And I think it is, an, is adding something quite important to the text. Um, a certain man. Uh, it has a, um, a providential scent to it, doesn't it? Uh, not just any man, not just a man. A certain man. And we're told that a certain man was ill. His name is Lazarus. He is Lazarus of Bethany, uh, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And the reader of Luke's gospel is familiar with uh, Martha and Mary, and we know that Jesus would sometimes frequent their home. Uh, they're uh, probably undoubtedly uh, from a very well-to-do family, um, and I think we've got very good reason to believe that they were probably uh, supporting Jesus' ministry monetarily. Uh, I think there's very good reason for that. I think it's almost obvious that's the case. And there was a very special bond, a very special relationship between Jesus and Lazarus and Mary and Martha. 
Now, in verse 2, John tells us about a story that we haven't even come to yet in the gospel. He tells us that it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, we're going to get to that story in the next chapter. Uh, And we have to wonder, as some of the commentaries bring out in this text, that uh, perhaps John was aware that uh, many of the people that he was writing to would already know that story. That's, I think, conjecture, but... Uh, we're going to get to that story. At the very least, we can say that John is throwing that out there for us. He's alerting the reader uh, that it's coming. We have some more instances of that, uh, which is um, part of John's style. As we've been studying this gospel, we've seen that from time to time. In verse 3, we're told the sisters send to Jesus. And they send to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Well, there's a Another recognition of the special relationship that exists between Jesus and Lazarus. And this illness here obviously, obviously is not the sniffles. Try to get that out real fast. Obviously is not the sniffles. Not easy to do. <laughs> I botched that up. It's obviously not the sniffles. That's better. That's a little clearer. Um, he's on his deathbed is what I'm trying to say. He's gravely ill. Gravely ill. So the sisters send for Jesus. And they address Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, where is Jesus at this point? We don't really know. There's a lot of conjecture on it. If you look back to chapter 10, verse, I don't know, what do we got here? Verse 40, there we're told that Jesus went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first and there he remained. Uh, All we really have about where that actual location is are theories. Uh, I don't think we can say for sure. Some theories are better than others, but I'm not going to bother you with all those details this morning. I, I don't think we know exactly where, but I will say this. One thing we do know that we can say for sure is Jesus has now circled all the way back around to where this thing really kind of started, hasn't he? Because he starts at this place wherever it is, where John is baptizing across the Jordan, and now he is gone, and he is, and this is an important thing for us to begin to see here. He has gone through this entire uh, earthly ministry, if you will. Uh, more about that here in a few moments, but for right now, he's kind of back to where he started, and that's an important. He's made a circuit, if you will. Uh, you know, the sun has a circuit that it makes through the course of a twenty-four hour period. Psalm nineteen celebrates that, doesn't it? And he is making his circuit, uh, and he's nearing the end of that circuit, if you will. Now, I think Mary and Martha obviously know where Jesus is, or at least those whom Mary and Martha have asked to go deliver this message to Jesus, at least, at the very least, they know where Jesus is. They reach Jesus in verse 4. Jesus hears the news, and he he uh, remarks that this particular illness that is afflicting Lazarus, does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Here's a really important detail in understanding this story right here. Um, And we need to understand this phrase, glory of God, is not referring to the praise that the people of God would give to God, as sometimes we think the glory of God is the praise um, that his people are giving him. That is what's in view in many other contexts, but that's not what's in view here. What's in view here is God is about to pull the veil, if you will, 
uh, off of his glory, at least partially, so that his glory uh, can come into view, if you will. That what's about to take place is a partial uncovering of his glory so that his glory can be seen. And we are told that its purpose, if you look at verse 4 again, it's for the glory of God so that, you see there's the purpose phrase, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So this partial revealing of the glory has as its primary significance the glorification of the Son. Does that make sense? If we can imagine the Lord covered, if you will, we can't see His glory. But then if part of that covering is pulled away, then you see that glory. And you see that glory as somehow glorifying the Son. That's the picture here of verse 4. And it's very important that we that we get a sense of that as we move on. Now, we're told in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Notice how many times that's coming up. Um, and verse 5 has a very important purpose. It's to help us with verse 6, because many of you have probably scratched your heads when you've read verse 6, because you read verse 5, and you see Jesus loved Martha, he loved Mary, he loved Lazarus, and then you come to verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, doesn't that make you scratch your head? Uh, all of this, I mean, the, the, the text almost in every verse is speaking about this relationship that Jesus has with Lazarus. The word is he's gravely ill. He's on his deathbed. Jesus hears about it, and he remains two days. You would expect him to go immediately like he does when he's called to another text, wouldn't you? But he doesn't. And we have to ask ourselves, why is that? And if we're asking ourselves why is that, we're asking the right question. That's the very question that, it, 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 that we're supposed to ask. It's the very question that we're supposed to research as we continue to study this story. Now, in verse 7, we're told after this, presumably after this two-day period, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to Judea. Now, the disciples are pretty quick to uh, speak against that idea. Uh, they're reminding Jesus in verse 8, hey, you remember last time we were there, um, recalling chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus makes the comment, I and the Father are one, how did that go? You know, uh, sometimes, in fact, probably almost every Sunday, I'll ask Tammy as we're leaving here, was that clear? Um, how did that go? And she'll, she'll answer me. She'll tell me how it was. Um, Imagine Jesus asking his disciples, like, well, fellas, how'd you think that went? Well, they had rocks in their hands. Um, they're, they're seeking to stone him, and they're bringing this back up. They're, they're like, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go back there. And Jesus answered in verse 9, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Somewhat of a cryptic statement, huh? Somewhat of a cryptic statement. It starts out very clear. Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? They would have got that. Because they divided the working part of the day into 12 increments. And what's interesting is the, the scholars who study these things tell us that regardless of how long the day was, you know, 
Um, if my memory serves me correctly, isn't the 22nd of June the longest day of the year? Am I right on that? 21st. So tomorrow is the longest day of the year. And after that, the days start getting shorter, right? Uh, until we get into fall time and, you know, and you change your clocks and it's dark. Well, uh, imagine it, uh, if we're all farmers. I mean, we only have so much time to work, don't we? And what the ancients would do is, regardless of how long the day was, how many hours of daylight they had, they divided it into 12. And I point this out to you because as the days get shorter, each hour gets shorter. As the days get longer, each hour gets longer. And the, the, the timepiece, if you will, the clock's like an accordion. It's moving in and out. And, the, and, and then scholars will criticize. Sometimes scholars will criticize that these exact times in the Bible that are mentioned, you know, especially concerning the sun, when did the sun go dark? Um, when was Jesus crucified? And they'll criticize these time frames as if everyone was walking around with a, a Motorola in their pocket, you know, they had a digital clock on it. Um, no, they didn't keep precise time. They had no way of keeping precise time. What is Jesus making reference to? He's making reference to the day. We have to work when it's daytime. We have to work in the daylight. He says, if anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he can see. He can see because of the sun. Now in verse 10, he pushes this further into the spiritual realm because he says, if anyone walks in the night, in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now what is Jesus talking about? Now Jesus is talking about the fact that the time of him being with them is running fast short. As I said earlier, just as the sun makes its circuit around, uh, that 24-hour period back to where it began as the Psalm 19 celebrates, Jesus is making his circuit around. And he, these, the, I mean, we might, only, we might think we're in chapter 11, we still got 10 more chapters to go. Well, we might have 10 more chapters to go, but the last half of John's gospel is on really just about a few days, just a handful of days. It's the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. So Jesus is in the 11th and a half hour here, if you will, uh, of his earthly ministry. And what Jesus is basically saying here is the same thing that he said back in John chapter 9. And I made a lot of noise about it. If you turn back to John chapter 9 there, you see Jesus, you remember he, him and his disciples passed the man who's been born blind from birth. And they asked the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus in verse 3 answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is the same thing that's going on in 11, chapter 11. And then in verse 4, he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. He's making a reference to this circuit. He's just about complete. It's just about time for him to go to the cross. But there's a few more things that have to be accomplished. But the time is running short. Do they understand this? Unlikely they're understanding all of this. Now, after they, in verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Well, his disciples, I mean, they put together what we would probably put together. I mean, if you look at verse 12, they said, well, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to recover. What are they thinking? Well, he was ill. Jesus said this illness doesn't lead to death. Jesus is saying he's asleep. And they're saying, well, Lord, he's going to get rest. He'll, he'll recover. Well, Verse 13 says, Jesus is speaking about his death. 
But they thought he meant he was taking rest and sleep. In other words, they think he's convalescing at home somewhere. In verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Now look at verse 15. Jesus says, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Now there's a clue in answering verse 6. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you might believe. Now, are the disciples unbelievers at this point? I hardly think not. They've left everything to follow Jesus. Their hearts are invested in Jesus. So then what's Jesus mean by this, so that you might believe? What he means by this is that your faith might be strengthened. Your faith might be strengthened. Now, there's another clue to what's going on here. Jesus said he delays two days in going to Lazarus, and then he says he's glad he's not, he wasn't there, so that his disciples might believe. So we can start to put together that whatever's going to happen is going to be a partially uh, uh, un unveiling, if you will, of God's glory. This unveiling of God's glory is going to reveal Jesus, is going to gl glorify Jesus, if you will, and it's going to have the effect of strengthening the faith of the sheep, of Jesus' sheep. Does it make sense? So... Um, Notice verse 16. Verse 16 is kind of surprising. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Well, some will say, no, what's surprising about this? Well, isn't, that, isn't this Peter's role to play? Isn't this the kind of thing we're kind of used to hearing Peter do? We're not hearing from Peter here, are we? We're hearing from, or from uh, Thomas. And uh, here I think what John is doing is he's pointing something out. Peter could have very well been making all kind of noise. It just doesn't get recorded in this story. If Peter was there, I'm sure he was doing what Peter does. Um, but John has recorded Thomas's comment. And Thomas is going to come up again later uh, towards the very end uh, in chapter 20 of this gospel. And I think it's to raise a flag in our minds here. Thomas is saying the real act of bravery here, uh, let us go that we may die with him. We know how that works out. Uh, we know that as Jesus is arrested, everyone scatters. But let's not take away this act of courage that Thomas is saying right here. Uh, in this moment in time, uh, Thomas is ready to die with Jesus. Uh, but it's very important that Jesus die alone. Um, so he will not be given the strength to do that. Now, in verse 17, Jesus makes his way into the, uh, not into the village, but to the village, he finds that Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. We're told that Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. This is a different Bethany than in chapter 1, verse 28, where it is said that uh, John is baptizing. Uh, it's a different Bethany. We don't know where the Bethany in 128 is. If you look on a map, you look at Jerusalem, you'll see that this Bethany that's two miles off is southeast of Jerusalem. And it is the Bethany that uh, Jesus will leave and depart from in the next chapter and descend down the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem and down into Jerusalem and in what the church has historically called his triumphal entry. Um, so uh, verse 19, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Another indication it's a pretty well-to-do family. Presumably people are coming up Probably prominent people are coming up out of Jerusalem to uh, extend their condolences for uh, Martha and Mary's loss of their brother. Now, in verse 20, 
So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, there's two possible constructions we could put on this. You know, we were kind of doing this last week with the Jews who circle around Jesus, right? And uh, Solomon's colonnade. They had him hemmed in. Um, here we could say there's two possible constructions we could put on this. Is Martha rebuking Jesus for not being there? Is she saying, Lord, if you'd just been here, this wouldn't have happened? Is that what she is saying? I think the context clearly speaks against that. I don't think that's the construction here. Uh, and many commentaries are agreed on that position. I think when you look at verse 22 and you see where she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She, is, she has all this trust in Jesus, doesn't she? I think she's happy he's here. Uh, she's embracing him. Uh, she can't think of anyone who she would want more to be with her right now than Jesus. I think this is an open-armed, uh, very welcomed embrace. I don't think there's any element of rebuke, rebuke in this whatsoever. I think it's confidence. But if we look back at what she's saying, she's saying, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Hold on to that for a moment. Now, Jesus responds to her, and he says in uh, verse 23, well, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds and says, well, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, what does she automatically think? She's thinking that the end, the end times on the very last day in the resurrection, that, that he's going to rise with everyone else. And this was hotly contested during this time. You had the Pharisees that believed in a resurrection in the last day. You had the Sadducees that did not believe. Obviously, uh, Martha embraced the resurrection on the last day. She thinks this is what Jesus is talking about. Perfectly natural to think that, isn't it? But that's not what Jesus is talking about. We've read the story, and Jesus wants to clarify that. He makes this amazing statement in verse 25. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks Martha, do you believe this? And look what Martha says in response. She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is one of the clearest and most glorious professions of faith that we have in the entire New Testament. And it's a shame that Martha is often remembered as the one who's bellyaching about being stuck with serving while her sister's sitting at, at Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 10. I think it's verses 38 in that area somewhere. When she should be remembered by this. This is an amazing profession of faith. She says, I believe you're the Christ. What is that? That means the Christos. What is the Christos? The Christos is the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah, Mashiach. She believes he is not only the Messiah, he is the promised Messiah. He's not only a Savior, he's the promised Savior who has come, the one who was promised, beginning all the way back in Genesis 3.15. She's making a claim that that, that he is him. It's extraordinary. Now, when she had said this, verse 28, she went and called her sister Mary, saying, in private, the teacher's here, he's calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went out to him. Jesus obviously wants private time with these, with these women. He wants private time with these sisters. 
before he goes into the village. So um, she quickly gets up, verse 29, goes out to him, verse 30. Uh, Jesus had not yet come into the village, was still in the place where Martha had met him, verse 31. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they conclude that she's going to the tomb to weep, uh, so they're following her. So now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, look what she does. She falls at his feet. She just falls at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We heard that before, didn't we? They say exactly the same thing. Neither sister knowing what the other sister said. And I think we can read between the lines. They say the exact thing because this is what they've been saying for a week. If Jesus gets here, our brother is going to be fine. And then after Lazarus dies, what do they continue to say in their, in their pangs of grief? If Jesus would have got here, this would not have happened. If Jesus would have got here, this would not have happened. In other words, they have full, they have full confidence that Jesus could have healed Lazarus from the illness. But now that he's died, that's another matter. You see where this is going? Oh, to, to heal him from an illness is one thing, but now that he's died, well, that's a whole other story. Now, in verse... 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Probably everyone in this room this morning's whatever translation you have, you probably have the word troubled. Am I correct on that? Does anybody have anything else but trouble? I, I think we can say this without any doubt whatsoever, that this word does not mean trouble. Trouble gets to the heart of it. I'm not saying it's mistranslated. But Greek scholars are beside themselves because this continually gets translated as trouble. I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a reason why the translators always make this trouble. But do you want to know what the word really means? I'm convinced it means this. Jesus is irate. Now, perhaps the translators put trouble because they're worried that people will read that and get um, misunderstand it. But time and time again, um, and you look at the evidence, Jesus is troubled, all right. The problem with the word is it's not strong enough. He's livid. He's irate. You know, let's look at the verse again, verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was irate. Now, there's some, so the, the question before us now is, why is he irate? And there's some interpretations out there that are really harsh towards the sisters uh, on this. I, I don't think I couldn't entertain that for a moment. Um, but we have to ask ourselves, why is Jesus irate? I think the answer very clearly, uh, we could say with one word, he's irate because of death. But we could expand that, if you will. What is death the consequence or the result of? The wages of sin is what? It's death. 
You have sin. You have unbelief. You have death. You have the evil one. What is Jesus coming to do? He's coming to destroy what? He's coming to destroy death. Now, what is Jesus doing? He's taking in what's happening. In verse 33, he sees her weeping. He sees the Jews. That is Mary. He sees Mary weeping. He sees the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He's deeply moved in his spirit. He's irate. Um, and he says in verse 34, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then in verse 35, he weeps. This is the shortest verse in the Bible. If you want to memorize a Bible verse this afternoon, verse 35 is your verse. Two words, but two very powerful words. There's something that we can learn about our Lord right here that is profound. If we forget practically everything this morning, don't forget this. Jesus is irate, yet he weeps. Let me put it another way. Jesus is irate, yet at the same time, he's also full of compassion. And this might be why the, why the translators want to use the word troubled. Because when we are irate, what are we like? Usually breathing murderous thoughts, right? And fancy words that go along with the murderous thoughts. But what we see about the Lord here is something completely amazing, is that while he is livid and irate, he is still at the same time amazingly compassionate. So much so that he's absorbing all of the pain and the grief that's taking place. And he enters into that grief and he weeps. The Son of Man, the Holy One of Israel, weeps. Isn't that an amazing thing? So he's livid, but yet full of compassion. And the Jews pick up on this. They say, see how he loved him in verse 36. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is not a compliment, by the way. In verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha speaks up. Martha says, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus says to Martha, did I not tell you? Look how kind he is. He's irate, yet look how kind he is at the same time. Can you imagine that? You know, I've read this many times. It wasn't until, not until this week when I was looking at the Greek in this text that I got to see. It's, it's, he's irate. I, I'm convinced he's irate. I've never seen this before. But what's amazing is as he is irate, he is still kind and compassionate at the same time. It's absolutely amazing. And look at his tender words to her. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around listening, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, you remember a few weeks ago when I was talking about the word sent, and I, I brought up one verse after another verse after another verse to the point that I probably practically annoyed some of you. Look at this verse. What does it say? And the, I was sent, and I was sent, and the Father sent me, and the Father sent me, and the Father sent me. Look, he's doing it again. 
Now, let's add this to what we've been doing with verse 6. Jesus delays when he hears the news because he loves the sisters and he loves Lazarus. And Jesus is glad that he delayed uh, for the sake of his disciples that they might believe. And now what is Jesus doing? He's praying. He's praying. And he's saying to the Father, he lifts up his eyes in verse 41, Father, I thank you that you've heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but I said this on the kind of people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. There's the glorification part. As the veil is about to be pulled part way from the glory of God, Jesus is going to be glorified by it. How is Jesus going to be glorified by it? We're about to find out. We're about to find out here in the midst of his lividness and in the midst of his compassion, which are going on at the same time, he asked for the stone to be rolled away. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. And this is an angry voice. He cries out, Lazarus, come out. It's a command. And the man who had died came out in his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. That unbind him is really interesting. Lazarus, who was kept by death, has now been set free and unbound from death. Let's add that to the words that both sisters give to Jesus. Lord, if he had been here, our brother would not have died. And the despair that's in their voices as if death now is the end. And what does Jesus say to this despair? He says, he'll, he'll be raised in the resurrection. Oh, I know, in the resurrection of the last day, he'll be raised. I know, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, how is that strengthening faith? Well, it's one thing to believe that Jesus can heal you of a, a disease, but it's entirely another thing to believe that Jesus can heal you from death, isn't it? And what better way to demonstrate that Jesus has been sent by the Father than simply saying to a man who's been in the tomb for four days, come out. And what is this prefiguring, by the way? You remember how when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, back in John chapter 8, verse 12, and what's he do in John chapter 9? He comes to a man who has never seen light, and he gives him light, and he restores his eyes. And not only does he give light to his eyes, he gives light to his dead soul, he gives light to his heart. And now the man's walking in the light, and whoever walks in the light will never walk in darkness again. And now Jesus is doing it again, only this time it's a much greater miracle. He's at a graveside, and he's ordering a stone to be removed. And he calls out to Lazarus who's been in there dead for four days. He's been in the tomb for four days. And Lazarus comes out. And this isn't where it ends, is it? Because this prefigures what's going to come next. Where the next one who's going to be in the tomb is going to be Jesus himself. And on that third day, Jesus will come out of that tomb, won't he? Because he is truly the resurrection and the life. What, a, what an amazing story. 
What an, and it's not just a story, it's an event that took place in history and time and space. If you look back to verse 25, that's the epicenter of this. I was supposed to read that as our scripture memory verse this morning, by the way. Um, brain is really tired today. Um, so I apologize for that. But if you look at verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Now we have to ask ourselves about that phrase, you know, resurrection and life, is it speaking of one thing or is it, is life just, is life just, is it just supporting resurrection or is life adding something here? I think it's adding something here. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. I think that speaks to the resurrection. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's simple enough, right? We believe in Jesus, even though we die, we shall live beyond that grave, right? And therefore, death is really just a doorway into life. But in verse 26, he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What's he speaking about there? I think he's speaking about two things there. First of all, after we go through this doorway of death, there will be no more death. Death will be no more. We sing that sometimes, don't we? And death will be no more. Okay, he's speaking about that. But I think he's also speaking about the fact that the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in that very moment, you are already alive. We could think about our blind man, and we could add Martha to our blind man. We could add the woman at the well to the list. That the moment they begin to believe, the moment, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. The moment we do that, you become, you, 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 you have life in you or you wouldn't have done that in the first place. You're now alive in Christ Jesus. And even though, even though death may stop the body, it will be harmless against our souls. To the contrary, it's going to be to the great gain of our soul the day we step out of these bodies and into what we call the intermediate state with Christ. Unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, that's what each one of us is going to do. How are we to perceive that? We perceive that with the Apostle Paul, to die is great gain. To die is great gain. Does that make sense? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. And what a word it is, Father. Father, this is a word that concerns every person in this room. Are we trusting in you this morning? Are we flirting with the things of this world? Are we trusting in you this morning? Are we playing playing fast and loose with sin? Are we trusting in you this morning? Or are we clinging to idols? Well, Father... Um, Come to us this morning. Come to us, O Father, and pull back the veil from your glory and cause that glory to shine in our hearts that we could say with Martha or we could say with the blind man or we could say with the woman at the well or we could say with at least 11 of these these 12 disciples that you are the Christ, you are the Son of God.
You are the one who has come into the world, promised by the Old Testament Scriptures and fulfilled in the New. And, oh, Father, for the rest of us who have been walking with you for many, many years, oh, Father, strengthen us this morning. So many of us are so badly in need of strength. Oh, Father, let us recognize that whatever it is that is pulling us down this morning, and there's many things we could talk about that are pulling us down, we recognize these things, every one of them are temporary. That soon, oh, Lord, we, you will bring us in your time. You will personally come to us yourself, and you will bring us through the doorway of death, and there we will enter into life, a life that we're already presently in now, but a life in its fullness where we will be in your presence awaiting glorified bodies where death will never visit us ever, ever again, nor will tears or despair or depression or pain of any kind. Well, Father, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.